Good morning. You know, Riverside is different. You know, and the more, the further I get away and the more different places I go, I realize just how different Riverside is. And I was asking God, why, what is different about Riverside? I mean, I go to different churches and they may sing the song, same songs. There's good preaching. What is it that makes Riverside different? And what I really felt the Lord impressed on to me was this, is that at Riverside there is an expectation that when the doors are open, whether it's in worship or in the word, that there is going to be an encounter with God. There's an expectation that God is truly going to meet with us. And the funny thing about that is when you come with that expectation, when you're hungry and you're thirsty and you're expectant for God to meet with you, you know what? He does. And so I'm expecting that, and we've already experienced that in worship. And what I pray today is that there would be an expectancy today in the word that God would speak to us, that his very presence through his word would become manifest to all of us, and we would touch it in a way we haven't to this point. Um, we're going to read out of Exodus chapter 33. Um, starting with verse 1, we're going to read verse 1 through 3, and then we're going to read verses 11 through 18. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Depart and go up from here, you and the people you have brought out of the land of Egypt, to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's reiterating his promise, saying to your descendants, I will give it. And I will send my angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanite, the Amorite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, for I, but then, then it's like goes totally out of, out of, almost out of character, out of context, because he's talking about the blessing of God. He's talking about, he's reiterating about going into the land of promise. But then he says this, for I will not go up in your midst, lest I consume you by the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. Then verse 11, it says, So the Lord spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. And he would return to the camp, but his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, did not depart from the tabernacle. Then Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me, yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found grace in my sight. Now, therefore, I pray you, if I have found grace in your sight, show me your way that I might know you and that I might find grace in your sight and consider that this nation is your people and he said, my presence will go with you. He changes his mind, so to speak. And I will give you rest. Then he said to him, if your presence, Moses talking, if your presence does not go with us, do not bring us up from here. For how then will it be known that your people and I have found grace in your sight, except you go with us? So we shall be separate from your people so we shall be separate, your people and I, from all the people who are on the face of the earth. So the Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing that you have spoken, 
for you have found grace in my sight, and I know you by name. And Moses said, show me your glory. Now, in order to put this in context and really understand what was going on here with God reiterating his promise and, and saying his presence wouldn't go with him, and then the conversation with Moses and him you know, kind of going back with God and, 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 and God then responding and say, okay, yes, I will go in your presence. You need to understand what happened before this. See, in chapter 32 was the incident of the golden calf. And if you read in, in verse 30, or chapter 32, starting with verse 1, it says, when Moses failed to come down from the mountain right away, Moses had been up in the mountain getting the commandments from God to bring back down to the people. He was, he was getting the word. He was getting the heart of God for the people. But when he didn't come back down right away, the people went to Aaron. Look, they said, make us gods who can lead us. Make us gods who can lead us. And of course, we know that what took place was they broke off all their jewelry, they melted it down, and they made this golden calf, and they started to party like it was 1999. And then God had to say to Moses, Moses, get down. This rebellious people, this people of yours have already forsaken me. Go down to the people. So what we see in this is a heart and a thinking and an understanding of the people of Israel that just wasn't right. And one of the main things about their thinking or about their heart was they had a callousness about their relationship to God himself. See, these words, make us a God to go ahead of us, make us a God to lead us showed that they were much more concerned, listen, about where they were going than who was going to lead them. See, they were very interested in the promise of God. Where was God going to take us? But they weren't that interested. They weren't that concerned about his very presence. See, they had missed the fact that the purpose of God wasn't where they were going. It was who they were following. Even as John brought that scripture ahead of time, and he had no idea what I was going to say. They had lost fact that their destiny, their calling, was not just out of Egypt or to Canaan. It was unto God, that God would be their God and that they would be his people. Because how many of you know that you can go to a new land? You can change the scenery. But it is only in his presence that you will ever find rest. See, the children of God saw the purpose of God as nothing more than inheriting a little better real estate. And in many cases, the church has almost begun to preach that same gospel that Jesus, that the reason we come to God is so that God can take us from an undesirable place to a proverbial promised land. He wants to take you from poverty to prosperity. He wants to take you from struggle and pain to happiness. 
He wants to take you from hell to heaven ultimately. But let me be clear, God's purpose isn't from a, just to take us from a bad place to a better one. Just like the children of Israel, it's not about where we are going, but the relationship that we have to the one who is leading us. Listen to how God describes this in Exodus 19, 3 through 6 to the children of Israel. And Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. It's all about relationship. It's all about his presence. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you shall speak to the children of Israel. Here is how Jesus puts it. For this is eternal life. This is your destiny. This is your purpose, that you may, that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. The purpose of God for his people, both then and now, was not a destination. It was a transforming relationship. It was a transforming presence. Now, let me say this about the golden calf. First of all, this calf wasn't going to lead anybody anywhere. It wasn't moving. But see, the children of Israel, it was the kind of God that they wanted. It was the kind of God, listen to this, that they could take with them. They didn't want a God that they had to follow. They wanted a God that they could take with them, that they could have with them, that they could have that presence Go where they wanted to go. Do what they want to do. Party like they want to party. We want a God, but we want one with us. We don't want a God that we have to follow. Secondly, this idol was made of gold. Which represents so many of the things that unfortunately even today hasn't changed to where We believe that maybe gold, wealth, power in our hands has a more sure chance of leading us into our destiny than does the presence of God. And lastly, and what is so ironic is this gold that was supposedly going to lead, that had led them out of Egypt. When the children of Israel, when God came to them, in Egypt. They had nothing. They were broke. They were slaves. Absolutely nothing did they have to even make a God of gold. They couldn't follow anything else. Where did they get this gold? God gave them the gold. Listen to how they got it. I promised to you to rescue you from the oppression of the Egyptians. I will lead you to the land occupied by the Canaanites, a land flowing with milk and honey. The leaders of the people will accept your message. Then all of you must go straight to the king of Egypt and tell him, 
The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. Let us go on a journey three days into the wilderness and offer sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go except under heavy pressure. So I will reach out and I will strike the heart of Egypt with all kinds of miracles. Then at last he will let you go. Now listen to this. And I, God talking, I will see to it that the Egyptians treat you well, that they load you down with gifts so you will not leave empty-handed. The Israelite women will ask for silver, gold, jewelry, and fine clothing from the Egyptian neighbors and their neighbors' guests. With this clothing, you will dress your sons and daughters. In this way, you will plunder the Egyptians. How sad was it for them and how sad is it so many times today where we can take the tangible blessings, the things we received, the things that we inherited as the children of God, and we begin to put more faith, more confidence, more trust in those things than in the God who gave them to us. But the truth is this, that no golden calf, no matter how shiny, no matter how much more maybe respected that is, that wealth, that power, whatever it is, how respected it is in the eyes of man more than the presence of God, it is only the presence of God that will ever satisfy us. It is only the presence of God that will lead us into the place where we have our rest. Now, after all these things that, that had happened, and so this is the backdrop, God comes to Moses. He, he comes to Moses and he reiterates the promise as we just read. He tells him again, he says, I'm going to lead you into the land. I'm going to send my angel. He's going to provide protection for you. There's no one who's going to come from behind. There's nothing you're going to have to worry about that's in front of you. I am going to lead you. I'm going to bring you to the promised land. It sounds great so far. But then God rocks Moses' world and he says, the only thing is, I am not going with you. My presence is not going to go with you. God says, you can have it all. You can have the best that this world has to offer, but you just aren't going to have my presence. Now, what I want each of us to ask ourselves today is this honest question. What if God came to us today with the same offer? What if God said to us, you can have it all, the perfect family, the perfect career, financial freedom. You can have my, even my angel, which is going to protect you from everything. You are not going to have anything to fear, but you will have to forfeit my presence would we take it? Would we take it? And here's what I believe. That if there's any person in this room today that looks at that offer and says, I got to be honest, I will take it. What that tells me is simply this. You have not yet tasted of the presence of God. 
You have not yet tasted just how sweet, how precious, how wonderful, how glorious is his presence. And my prayer for you today is that God will manifest himself to you in such a way that you would never take that deal. That you could have any land, you could have any wealth, you could have anything this world has to offer, but you would never trade his presence for it. If you've encountered it, if you've known it, you will never take that deal. But now here's the thing that God, it kind of threw me for a loop because it's like, okay, if that's the deal, and I believe anybody here who has truly tasted God's presence, we know that at the end of the day, if the offer was there, as enticing as it may be, as much as our flesh and everything else may desire what it is, if it was a choice between that and God's presence, it would be no deal. But my question is, why then do we exert so much effort So much energy. Why do we stress? Why do we have such anxiety fighting and striving for the things that we know will never satisfy our soul? Why do we put forth so much effort in that and yet so little time often in pursuit of God in his presence? The thing that we know will satisfy us and the thing that will always lead us to the place we want to be. And please hear me. I mean, I've, I've heard this sermon a thousand times. This is, this is all right at my heart. It's like, Rick, well, wake up. You know you're not, you know you wouldn't choose the world. You know you're not going to choose these things. So why stress? Why put all your energy and effort? Why put all your worry when the presence of God in his, is available to you anytime you want to just turn and look to God? So let's look at Moses' response. Then Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found grace in my sight. Now, therefore, I pray, if I have found grace in your sight, show me your way that I might know you and that I might find grace in your sight. And consider that this nation is your people. And he said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Then he said, if your presence does not go with us, do not bring us up from here. And it goes on. But Moses takes a look at the deal that God offered. And as reverently, as respectfully as he can possibly say, he expresses to God, God, I'm not interested in your offer. I can live without the promised land. I can live without all the milk and honey. I know that you say that you will send your angel before me, but God, I don't know your angel. I know you. I know you, God. See, Moses was wrecked by the presence of God. Nothing else would ever satisfy him again. He was wrecked for being in God's presence and not even an angel, as mighty and as powerful as it may be, was going to be able to take the place of his relationship with God. Security is no substitute for the presence of God. So I think as we look at Moses and what was it 
What was it in Moses' heart? And this is what I really want us to lay hold today. What was it in Moses' heart, in his prayer, in his cry, that changed God's mind? What was it that God looked at in Moses and in his cry to him that said, you know, I wasn't going to go, but now I see your heart, Moses. I see what you're all about. And you know what? I will go with you. My presence will go with you. What was it? And I think it's found in these words. If I have found grace in your sight, show me your way that I might know you. Show me your way. The word in Hebrew for way here means journey or row. Moses is like, okay, let's forget about me. Let's forget about what is a better place for me. God, what I want to know is, where are you going? God, I want to know what you're doing. I want to know what's on your heart. I want to see the things that you see. I want to be a part of your journey. Forget about the promise. Forget about getting to a land that supposedly looks so great. I only want to go where you're going, and I want to be on that journey with you. And why was he so adamant? See, Moses understood that life was not about the destination. It was about the journey. And he understood that there was even a purpose in the journey. That it was only in the journey that we could actually get to know somebody. Hear, hear what he says. He says, show me your way. So show me your road. Show me your journey that I might know you. See, the only way that we can ever get to know God intimately, the only way we can fully experience his presence is the same way that it would be with anybody else. We have to walk the same road that they are on. We have to share what is in their heart. My prayer today for all of us is that we will experience God's presence in a more more full way. But I can't make it any more clear than to say this. If we really want to experience more of God's presence, our focus has to move from us to him, from our way to his way. The cry of our heart must be like Moses' show me your way that I might know you. And how does this happen? You know, I found this interesting. In verse 11 of this chapter, this is what it says. It says, The Lord spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. Now, up until really just as I was working on this message, I, you know, when, when I thought about God spoke to Moses like a man does to his friend, I, you know, it almost, I had the sense, well, Moses and God were buddies. That there was, you know, it seemed almost irreverent. I didn't really understand, God, what does it mean? He's his friend. He speaks like a friend. Why does it even say that? What is the purpose? But then God began to reveal to me What place having a friend or being a friend has in experiencing the presence of God? And this is what he said. A lot of people want Jesus to be their friend. 
But what Jesus wants to know is, is there anybody out there who wants to be his friend? See, there are a multitude of Christians that want God to join us on our journey, to enter into our plans and into our purposes, into our pains and into our concerns. But what God wants to know, is there anyone out there today that want to enter into his? See, and a great illustration of this is, is the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, as we look at the Garden of Gethsemane is where Jesus went to pray, to, to pray, God, your will be done. Not mine, but yours be done before his crucifixion. Now, we know the disciples, they were a great bad example, if that's a phrase, of what it was like to live for their purposes rather than God's. To live for the promise rather than his presence to be more concerned about their way than about God's. Because see, it seemed like every time Jesus would begin to talk about his way, right? Every time he would begin to talk about the fact that he was going to have to go to the cross, the time he would talk about his suffering, the time he would talk about his battles, his burdens, the disciples, the only thing they could think about was, hey, how am I going to get mine? Who's going to be the one who gets to sit at your right hand? And who's going to be able to, to sit at your left? Who's going to get the best seat in the house? And the epitome of this poor friendship was in the Garden of Gethsemane. Because here Jesus was, having poured himself out to his disciples for three years having poured himself out to the crowds and even to his enemies. And now here he was in his greatest time of need, in his place where his burden was so great as he was dealing with the fact that his very father was going to have to turn his back on Jesus, that he might bear the burden, the sin of the world. His burden, his pain was so great that his sweat was as great drops of blood falling to the ground. If there was ever a time Jesus needed a friend, this was it. But as he looked back at his disciples, as he looked back, hoping that there would be somebody there to share the burden, to share where the road that he was on, all he found was some onlookers asleep at the wheel. And as I stand here today, I believe the word for us is this. Jesus is still on the same road. Jesus is still walking the same way. And Jesus is still asking ever, every one of us today the same question that he asked his disciples. Could you not tarry with me one hour? Jesus wants to know, will we walk the road that he's on? Will we share in his burden? Will we share in his cares? Because see, the world still needs a savior. The world still has its pain. The world still needs to hear the good news. And Jesus is asking not, do we want 
him to hang out with us? Do we want him to come along with us on our journey to ease the pain, to ease the stress? He's wondering, who is there out there that will be my friend, who will yoke up with me, who will get on course with what the Father's will is and say with me, not my will, Father, but yours be done. And as I was preparing this message, and this just blew my mind, we know that Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, ultimately, after he prayed and, he, and three times he saw the disciples sleeping, that ultimately an angel had to come and strengthen him. And what was spoke to my heart is, what if there would have been just one friend? What if there would have been just one disciple that said, God, uh, Jesus, I'll put aside my sleep and I will walk this road with you. Would that angel ever even been necessary? Would that have been sufficient for Jesus? And then I thought to myself, what if a Peter, what if a John had made that choice in that hour of Jesus' deepest need to be a friend? How deep and rich and mighty would the experience of God's presence have been in their life? How great would that intimacy I promise you all it would have been historic. But then God turned the page again to me and he said, do you realize that you and the rest of my church has this opportunity every day? That so often we're crying out and we're, 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 we're so focused on our needs. We say, God, we want your presence in, your, in our life because we want to, you to ease our load and you, we want you to walk with us. We want your presence, God, and in a sincere heart. And yet God says the way to experience my presence more fully is not to call me into your life, but to enter into my life, to enter into my suffering, enter into what I have. And each and every one of us can do that every day. But we're missing the opportunity no less than the disciples did. See, that was the greatest. You know, we talk about, well, how do I experience the presence of God? There was no greater opportunity that there probably ever was than the disciples had to enter the presence of God by just joining Jesus for one hour. So as I cry out and I'm saying, God, I want your presence. God's just saying to me, well, then join me. Join me. The whole thing that we're, we're talking about today and what is the, the, the burden of, of my heart and what, again, as I talked about Riverside and about, you know, when I said that there's an expectation, what there's an expectation of is there of, of, of God's presence. Having gone to this church for 13 years or whatever it was and time after time experiencing God's presence, you long for more of the presence. Once you've touched it, you need you, nothing else satisfied. You've got to have more. And what God... It had to convict me of is do you really want my presence? Do you really want my presence? And I'm like, yes, God, I want your presence. Okay, I'm going to show you how to go deeper in my presence. And so what I'm sharing to you is just the truth about what it is I believe God showed us that we need if we're going to enter deeper into his presence, if we're going to go to a deeper level. And it goes like this, and this is the, he, he kind of had to walk me through a progression here, and, and this is how it, how it came out. When we get saved, when we first get filled with the Holy Spirit, 
It all comes so easy, right? His presence seems so close. It seems so rich. It seems so tangible. I mean, it's almost euphoric. In our early days of of walking with Jesus, his presence is so sweet. And what God showed me is this is kind of like an earthly baby. See, when we have an earthly baby, you have a one-week-old, it's all about them. And in the very same way as a Christian, when we're born again, God allows it to be all about us because he wants us to experience the richness of his presence. He wants us to know what it's like for the first time to experience a love that was undeserved, that you did nothing for, you didn't earn. He pours himself out so you will have a taste and an experience of who he is and of his greatness. So there will be a desire So there'll be a dissatisfaction with anything less than that. But just like an earthly baby, this is just supposed to be a stage. It's not where we're supposed to live. And we as Christians in the church, as we've experienced this, we get born again. And we want to stay babies in the sense of we want it to be all about us. But the truth of the matter is, the longer we go in Christ... The more it's about us, the less of his, of his presence we're going to experience. The more about him it is, the greater his, experience is, of his presence is going to be. It's as simple as that. So if we want to stay in the place where it's about us, don't look for the presence of God. We can seek, pray, strive, ask God to come along, but it's not. It's only as we begin to leave that babiness aside childhood aside and start to grow up and be men and women and say, God, I really do want your presence. I want the real thing. And here's the deal. And I'm going way off the track here of my notes. So the world needs the real thing, people. It needs the presence of God. It is only the presence of God that is going to change this world. It's not just a good doctrine. It's not a bunch of babies who are living for themselves with big smiles on their faces, trying to live these happy lives, whatever. It's as we truly become friends of God with his presence upon us that we are going to change the world, that the world's going to see that there's something more, that there's something more powerful than just religion. And here's, here's what God said as well. I mean, I'm just making it so clear to me. It's like, because you're thinking, well, you mean it's all about you? What about me? And, and this and again, it's God, God's like looking and saying, do you really think that you are going to outfriend me? Do you really think you can make it all about me? That you can give your life totally to me and I'm going to fail you? that you're not going to have exceedingly abundantly above all that you could ever ask or think. The promise is the easy part. The presence is the hard part. And what God, I know he wants from me, and I know he wants from you, is us walking in the fullness of his presence. But it has to be about him. I'm already over time, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say one thing on this. And it goes right along the, these lines. It's something that I want us to be set free from again and it, so that we can walk more fully in his presence. And there's a, 
a, almost a misconception out there, if, if you could call it that, that keeps us kind of locked in. It's kind of almost reinforced by the church at times. Um, and that is that this whole idea that God is on your side, that God is for you. Now, don't throw anything at me, but I hate to break the news for you. God is not for you. At least not in the way that it's commonly preached and understood. Yes, God loves you. Yes, without a doubt, God desires the very best for you. He just knows that the very best for you is for you to be totally surrendered to his purpose, not for him to be fully committed to your purpose. See, the only purpose that God's ever going to be committed to is his And the level of the presence of God we experience won't be to the degree that God is for us. It will be to the degree that we are for God. We are for God. We are for his glory. It's as simple as the the verse and as straightforward as, as Chronicles 15, 1 and 2. Now the spirit came upon Azariah, the son of Obed. And he went out to meet Asa and said to him, Hear me, Asa, and Judah, and all Benjamin. And Benjamin. This is pretty simple stuff. The Lord is with you while you are with him. The Lord is with you while you are with him. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. You can't separate God's purpose in his presence. If it was true for Jesus, it's true for us. John 8, 28. And he who sent me is with me. He is with us. The Father has not left me alone. Why? For I always do those things that please him. See, what you hate to see is is, is people who get shipwrecked because we look and we've got this mentality, well, I love God and God loves me then why am I not winning? Why is it that my plans aren't succeeding? We fail to realize that God's purpose is not only succeeding now, it will always continue to be succeed. See, we say God is faithful. He is faithful that we be to continue to work, that we be conformed to the image of Christ. His purpose for us, to be conformed to the image of Christ. Everything we're going to experience in this life, the good, the bad, and the ugly, is for one thing, to conform us to his image so that his presence can live in us and through us and he can manifest himself to the world. If we're looking for anything in life, for our circumstance to be the purpose, we're going to be disappointed. We're going to be frustrated. But if we realize that God's purpose is not the circumstance, it's what comes out of the circumstance. It's are we getting made closer, more to the image of Christ? And is his present being manifest to us and to the world? So if the worship team will, will come up, I just want to close with this. Let's make 2015 be about God. 
Let's decide that in 2015, we're not going to worry about us. We're not going to set these, these expectations and these, these goals for what we have to accomplish or where we got to get to. We're going to surrender to the purpose of God. And we're going to see his presence manifested to us and through us in a way we've not yet seen. Amen? Amen. So we're going to sing a song. And it's, this is about as simple as it gets. In Christ alone. In Christ alone. Let's make 2015 all about Christ alone. Amen? Let's sing. Amen.